to the 153rd episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 120 years to the day since the first ever Edgbaston Test match began. Every member of the England eleven had a first-class century to their name, and legendary writer Frank Keating reckoned it was the best England team ever. Welcome to the podcast that hopes Ben Stokes and co. will soon give us cause to reopen the debate. So every member of the England eleven had a first-class century, presumably including the bowlers... Yes. So you had, um, for example, um, Wilfred Rhodes at number 11. And I think you could make the case that this was a team effectively without yep. a tail. So yep. um, p- pity the Australians. Um, so in terms of uh, whether this is going to be replicated, now that we've got a, a Kiwi captain and a Kiwi coach, maybe that's, maybe that's the route to success after, after 120 years. What did you make of Brendan McCollum's um, appointment? What, what is your, okay, in, in two sentences... What and we're going to quote this back to one another in seven years when he, you know, en- ends his tenure. Um, what do you think his legacy is going to be? How how do you think he's going to fare? I think success or not, it's guaranteed to be very exciting. And I think perhaps after everything over the last year or so, where everyone seems to be slightly falling out of love with the England team a bit, maybe that's a, that's a good start. What, what that is you? that is that is a very politician's answer. Success or not, <laughs> dot dot dot. Um, I have I think I think I have a good feeling about him. I have a good feeling about the combination of him and Rob Key, because I like the fact that both of them aren't kind of standard. What what puzzled me and sort of frustrated me about the previous England setup is that all of the um, kind of upper echelons seem to be very much kind of management types. He spoke in management speak and had performance plans and blah de blah and the cricket kind of got lost. But what I like about the two of them is that it seems that the kind of pragmatic decisions are going to be made to keep the cricket um, at the forefront. So that was more than two sentences. That wasn't really a prediction. Um, between us, we've um, kind of said absolutely nothing about what's going to happen in English cricket over the next little while. We fudged. We truly fudged. Now, let's, to, let's move on from fudging. Um, and I want to hear about uh you and baseball yes so um i'm recently back from a uh, m- much postponed trip to the uh us and as uh, an- any good cricket lover would do i was out there on a you know partly on a scouting mission to see what all this baseball's about um now my, my first attempt to watch baseball failed for a reason familiar to any cricket fan which was that rain stopped play and i, I thought this was really interesting because i hadn't actually processed that rain could stop baseball that makes sense interestingly the game was actually called off before it had even started because it had been wet all day and the forecast was terrible so so, so, so it's not just kind of rain falling from the sky it's kind of underfoot conditions that will affect so i think it was i think it was that yes is it the fact, when you're yes, turning and, those and tight the, corners around the diamond i think there was something about that and also yeah, i think right. the forecast was terrible for the evening so they they made the decision that uh, enough was enough so there you go but we were not to be uh, deterred and we tried again and went to watch the washington nationals host the houston astros um, the very first pitch of the game was sent straight into the stand for a home run, which I think raised um, both my and my wife's sort of sense of mm. what normal drama was in baseball, because actually that turned out to be very rare. For the rest of the game, there were just seven runs scored. Um my main in terms of comparing the two sports i thought the fielding in baseball was completely remarkable mm. so you'd have these high catches taken in the outfield with complete nonchalance they make them look very easy don't they so easy and it's almost to the point where they're in some cases they're almost running off the field to think about the next innings and they've you know they've barely completed the catch um 
the other thing that is really fun is you have these double plays in which two batters can be thrown out so it's the equivalent of a run out in a single play um and this is really fun because it leads to sort of very quick thinking and kind of lightning throwing between bases um so yeah i really really enjoyed that i actually wonder whether that's um where i play in a tournament called last man stands where they have this thing called the double play where if you're run out the non-striker can get run out if they're not in their ground at the non-strikers end as well and I've always kind of it's quite a fun rule and it usually just catches out people who are new to the game and there's a you know development tactic for welcoming new people it's not very good when you get run out without facing a ball because you don't know this particular rule but presumably this is where it's come from yeah, well, I, I confess, um, we, we were very much learning the rules as we went and sort of having to frantically Google things. Mm. Um, and one thing I had wondered is you could see batters trying to steal a base, sort of so kind of wandering on. And I thought, well, when are the fielding team going to do something about that? And they would occasionally. So the pitch would suddenly, instead of pitching, they would swivel around and hurl the ball at mm-hmm. the base to try and get... So it, that, that was fun. Um, I thought in terms of other comparisons to cricket... On the scoreboard, they would actually say what delivery the pitcher had just bowled. So it would say something like a kind of a slow ball or a kind of Interesting. Um, yeah. in out curve or whatever. Anyway, I thought it was quite clever because one one problem that I think we all remark on a bit that when you watch cricket live, which is obviously a wonderful yeah, and you're side on. Ways, you have no quite. idea why it's beaten the yeah. bat. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I I don't I don't deny that I think doing something similar in cricket would be harder because I yep. think sometimes it's more debatable although perhaps a baseball fan would tell me it's very debatable in baseball as well but I thought that was quite an interesting innovation um, away from the sport itself I did wonder if cricket has something to learn from the venues um, you know I think we've often or at least perhaps I've often had this distinction in my head between you have grounds which are sort of smaller and have a lot of character and stadia that are often sadly i mean not so much with the really well done ones but are often a bit kind of clinical and big enclosed yeah yeah and and but but have a bigger capacity which is obviously the the trade-off and nationals park the home of the washington nationals um hosted just over can take just over forty thousand, so is over ten thousand bigger than lords which is not insignificant but still maintained i think that feeling of a ground that sort of sense of character um so so i wonder if there's something for cricket to to learn from that as well would you go back to a baseball game was it a kind of one-off curiosity for you or did you feel any kind of spark of i mean i don't know where you would see it in london but did yeah. you feel any spark of curiosity to take it further I, I would I would go back actually I really enjoyed the evening as a whole it, it, it is no great revelation to say that the Americans do razzmatazz in a mm. way that the rest of us can barely you know mm. comprehend so it, this this was actually a pretty one-sided game it wasn't thrilling towards the end and yet the crowd was still loving it I thought it was an interesting indicator that actually um, my wife Laura who's been to now both cricket and baseball I think she probably had a better time at the baseball than the cricket so that's that's interesting that's possibly a vote a vote was there a, a frosty conversation at the breakfast table the morning after when that opinion was uh, raised well, well yeah. do, do you know the, the other thing that the other thing that obviously the americans have down is the ability to sit at your seat and order food from the various concession stands their their ability to, to you, um, sort of room service style well interestingly you could do that for some we very stupidly managed to order it from one where we then had to seemingly walk to like the other side of the ground to pick it up so that was that Rookies. was less into, that was a rookie error on our part but yes obviously the the famed american um ability to make it as easy as possible yep. to part you from your to money eat, is is, is, is well honed yep. uh indeed now a- away from the uh 
the slugging of Nationals Park. Um, you've been uh, you've been on l- looking at the uh, the refined back in the refined world of Test cricket. Yes, yeah, so um, I was interested in some reports last week about the uh, Australian Test team having some qualms about visiting Sri Lanka, not necessarily because of security, but partly because of that. But also, you know, the question of is it right to mm. play, you know, flood Test matches in a country where most of the population don't have electricity at the moment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, and as I was reading these reports, I was thinking, um, I wonder what the Sri Lankan Test team have been up to recently because I uh, hadn't. They're, they're not a team I follow all that closely. Um, and I have to. I'm, this is an awful reason to have to have checked out Sri Lanka. I should be following them more closely. I shouldn't just be following them um, in order to, you know, see the the form guide ahead of a ahead of an Australia tour. But anyway, this is how I came to be having a look at their series, um, a way to 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 Bangladesh, and actually quite a compelling series it was. Um, it was two in the first test. Um, Angelo Matthews um, <laughs> was out on 199, trying for it. I mean, it's just kind of yeah classic um trying to slog sweep um a six to get to his double hundred and, and kind of spooning it up and getting tamely caught at, at, at mid wicket anyway despite angelo matthews 199 um the uh the bangladeshis managed to put together 465 um and have the better of that of that game um actually their their young offspinner name hassan who i haven't actually come across um before uh, took a six for in the in the sri lankan first innings and apparently bowled um bowled beautifully um in the in the second test um you know what you might think of as kind of normal service between the two sides resumed um bangladesh lost their first four wickets for under 25 runs in both in both innings um sri lanka won by by 10 wickets um however there was a rear guard in the second um second innings by shakib al hassan and Lytton Lytton das now for anyone who's who's um Follow the the test. My kind of uh, back in a postage stamp summary is probably not particularly particularly interesting, but what it reminded me. But if you haven't, there you go. You don't need to go and check out the scorecard. You heard it all here. But what it did, as I say, remind me of is that um, is the kind of brilliant cricket that happens outside some of the the major nations. Which when you're kind of strapped for time, which sadly I am um, at the moment with a little child soaking up most of it, that actually some of the most interesting cricket to be found can be found in you know uh, off the off the sort of top of the test table. It's also the endless in problems of the test schedule, isn't it? Trying to give due There's attention so to much these happening. series. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, you log um, on to Crick Info, and it's and you know, at the moment, it's all, um, it's all IPL and and T Twenty for the first kind of five minutes of scrolling before you can even get down to the test match. It's mm. a lot of cricket. I wonder this. So it sounds like for the moment the Australian tour will go ahead. It sounds like a really tough position to be in, in that. You completely see the argument that Sri Lanka's very sad situation, I think, both politically and economically mm. at the moment. But then I guess the um, the counter being that maybe for a, a population that, you know, cricket is a big part yeah. of it, having the Australians tour would be some sort of sign of it. Potentially brings money yeah. into the economy as well in some way, I suspect. I mean, I yeah. do, I half wonder in my cynical way whether what underlies it is security concerns. And mm. that this is a kind of nice way to dress it up rather than saying we've got security concerns, particularly after, you know, that it does seem that, that Australia has, under the kind of new regime, made a point of the fact that it wants to open up some of those, you know, um, foreign test tours. It went to Pakistan, for instance, recently mm. and, and made a point of going to Pakistan when, you know, for instance, England haven't for a long time. <laughs> Thank you.
archives. A couple of weeks ago, Australia received the sad news that another cricketing great had departed before his time with the death of Andrew Simons. Toby is going to take the opportunity this week to look back at the tournament that in many ways made his legend as an Australian cricketer. So Andrew Simons is one of those um, cricketers who... I tend to remember through YouTube highlights, reels and newspaper headlines. Newspaper headlines when he got in trouble for various um, eccentric misdemeanours um, and uh, YouTube highlights, reels of, of moments of, of sheer brilliance as a predominantly as a, as a batsman and as a fielder. Um, and so after he died, I was kind of thinking, well, what, what were the moments that, you know, beneath that really sort of defined him? Um, as as a cricketer and I re-remembered and wanted to kind of rediscover his involvement in the 2003 um, World Cup. So up to this point he'd been in and out of the Australian one-day side. Um, his international career I think could fairly be um, you know described as, as stuttering. Um, he was at the beginning of his international career and I'd never actually realised this um, Australia was his sort of third choice in a way of countries to play for um, he uh, he qualified by default for um, England uh, through England being his birthplace and for the West Indies via his via his parents um, and I think he actually had to you know spend time in Australia before he qualified for Australia but was very keen early on he was offered a place to tour on for a, an England in an England Lions team um, but it was very clear early on that he wanted to play for Australia he came to Australia and then it kind of didn't didn't quite happen um, for a little while. Flashes of brilliance, but but nothing um, nothing solid in terms of a place in the Australian One Day side. Partly because at that point the Australian One Day side was particularly particularly strong. Um, it was actually a kind of cruel series of circumstances that saw him playing at all or in the playing squad um, for the uh, 2003 World Cup. So Shane Watson got stress fractures in his back. Michael Bevan injured his leg. Um, Shane Warne failed a drugs test. Um, and Darren Lehman, uh, you know, after that wonderful moment where he racially abused a member of the Sri Lankan team, um, was still serving out that, that particular ban. It's another reminder, isn't it, just the, the depth of that side that you could lose you know, a yeah. host of core players and still go into that 2003 tournament. And it's such an inve- such an inventive list of wiping out, you know, a large proportion of your ways to wipe out a large proportion of your squad, you know. Um, yeah. So um, this all seems like a kind of backdrop to a terrible start to the World Cup for, for Australia. And in their first game, they dropped to 86 for four. And who is, you know, strolling to the crease? But Andrew Simons, the person they took in the squad, but never envisaged would be in the team. Someone who um, his coach, the wonderful <laughs> coach, the wonderfully named Toot Byron, um, said of him, I used to hate watching him back. He wasn't in control of his shot selection. He'd get 24 four off and over and then go out on the last ball of that over. You know, this is not someone who's going to come in and, you know, kind of shore up a shore up an innings. And it's your opening account in the World Cup. Um, but what happens is remarkable. First, he consolidates with Ponting. He sees off the, the, the Pakistani attack bowlers um, for a few overs. And then he just absolutely lets loose in an innings of 143 um, off 125 balls. And that's an undefeated um, 100. 143 balls. Um, Australia go on go on to win by 82 runs, and it's absolutely single-handedly Andrew Simons who's turned around what could have been, you know, a kind of campaign-setting humiliation at the very top into, you know, a perfect start for their World Cup um, campaign. And he then gets this run, doesn't he, against which I guess the some of the World Cup formats allow. You then get a run where you get some of the sort of um, 
slightly smaller nations involved, which I think for a team that's looking to build momentum can be quite handy. It can. Well, look, they get India next up, so I think you've just not so a few people by um, <laughs> claiming that there is all. But yeah, India, Zimbabwe, and the Netherlands are next up, and and e- and even though some of those players who were out come back, you know, after Andrew Simons has, has, has scored that 143, you know, he's kind of inked his name into the into the into the t- into the team. So. Um, they face India, Zimbabwe, and the Netherlands, but ironically, Simons doesn't get a bat. They don't need more than I think four or five batsmen in any of those um, in any of those those matches. Um, he then comes up against Namibia, makes a runnable fifty nine before being being run out, and then he makes a duck, his only duck of the tournament, in a in a tight victory. Um, over England in a game by the way that was the game and I was remembering this as a kind of um, back to when I was listening to this on TMS as a child when when Andy Bickle took seven seven for 20. Um, So it's also worth saying that at that point um, uh, Simmons had been had been uh, bowling a bit but to no great impact he hadn't hadn't taken any any wickets so playing purely as a batsman Layman and Michael Bevan are now back. So after that duck for England, he actually gets gets dropped. Um, he gets dropped in favour of, of Ian Harvey, presumably for Ian Harvey's bowling and kind of all round mm. all round bowling. So for the beginning of the super stages, do you remember this World Cups that went on for about three months? Yeah. So Australia have played you know, seven games and then they play six games in the super stages. But for the beginning of the super stages, Simon's gets dropped. It's interesting because I think there is more scrutiny now perhaps than there was there of that kind of like change bowler's role. But actually a lot of teams now realise that, you know, everyone's generally got great opening bowlers and what will often define your ability to keep control as a bowling team is who's the guy who's getting you through that to that 50, who's taking that, you know, last few overs. So, yeah, it's interesting. The wickets clearly matter, but also um, uh, the economy rate side, I guess, is another thing probably Australia are thinking about. so in the last of their the last of their super stage games um, is against Kenya, and as you were saying earlier, there are some games that probably, as a team at this point, you you know take for granted a bit, and you're a bit strategic mm-hmm. about your um, about your selections at this point. So Simons is brought back in. Um, he's brought up to number four to ensure that he gets a bat. Up to this point, he's kind of batting at, at six, seven, I think even eight at, at some points. Um, and he obliges with 33 not out and an emphatic win. You can't really ask ask for more. He sees the team the team home, and because of that, he shores up his place in you know in uh, over Michael Bevan in the semi-final against um, Sri Lanka. This game is an absolute classic. I kind of completely forgotten about it, and it was fun fun revisiting it. So Australia are in trouble at fifty one for three um, before Lehman and then Simons take them to a to a decent total. Simons top scores with ninety one off one hundred and eighteen balls. He's unbeaten um, at the end. Um, then the rain comes in. Duck, Duckworth Lewis total for for the Sri Lankans to chase, um, and Lee just absolutely you know dismantles the, the the Sri Lankan batting lineup but again without that Simons you know century putting the pressure on and even statistically if you take that off the off the run chase Australia would never have reached the um, would never have reached the final and so to that final Australia faced the team Andy described as the kind of minnows pushover earlier <laughs> the uh, India um, Australia have a you know have a have a hugely strong strong batting lineup and so and so again you know and at this point there's there's some irony in it Andrew Simons is the player who has kind of defined their tournament so far and certainly with the bat has defined their tournament he doesn't get a bat in the final um, Ponting uh, scores 140 odd I think um, and um, uh, Australia make 359 for two. Um, 
Um, at that point, it's always going to be hard for, for India. Simons does, though, feature with the ball taking two for seven and helping to clear up the Indian middle order. So finally, mm. he kind of, you know, comes, comes in as an all-rounder. It's just a great example of how this Australian team, I, I don't really know how you were supposed to beat them because ultimately you can have your top players not coming off for a few games and you know that there's enough in the tank to sort of mm. get you home anyway. And then as you say, in the final, the top order does come off. I think there's also something, there must be a sort of psychological credit to players like Simons in this situation where you, you are, as you put at the start, you're in and out of the team, you're waiting for your chance. Mm. You come in knowing that you know, if you don't score, there'll be the next cab off the rank, you know, and, and to actually deliver under those circumstances, I think is, is quite something as well. Well, I wonder, and I couldn't really find anyone particularly sort of talking about this, but whether that might have been a bit of a tactic with someone like Simons, whether he might have been a batsman who actually thrived under that, rather mm. than being cemented in the team and not having that incentive to score big every single time or lose, yeah. your, lose your place. I don't know. Maybe maybe different, you know, players handled well, well. I do know that it was Ponting who really, really backed him to be included in the World Cup squad team, and then in that first game against um, mm. Pakistan, uh, you know, in the first place. So I wonder whether there might have actually been some kind of behind the scenes debates about the best way to handle someone who was seen and was as mercurial as, as Andrew Simons. And there's there's been a fair bit written saying that he he was in many ways a perfect 2020 player, both mm. with sort of bat and with ball, actually. Um, and obviously was kind of a little bit, bef- in some ways, a little bit too early to really make the most of the sort of 2020 revolution. But yeah, that, that ability to perform um, under pressure was, was clearly a big part of that. So this 2003 World Cup, it's... You know, it's it's a huge moment for Andrew Andrew Simons, and it's really the moment that launches his one day career. From here, he's he's very much a, a fixture in the Australian one day team for the next five years. Before those off field antics came to kind of dominate his his story in cricket. And I think what's remarkable about this 2003 World Cup is not only the way that I mean, it's it's a kind of combination of things. It's obviously the way that he you know dominates along with. Ponting, I suppose, for Australia and and wins the World Cup for Australia. It's the way that he does it, turns games around and doesn't just do it in the first innings making big runs, but actually comes in in pretty dire circumstances and consistently turns games around. But then also does it as actually not having been thought of as the starting 11 and not being in the starting 11 for the vast majority of the tournament too. To the review, um, and for this episode, we have been reading The Test. Uh, it was published in 2018, and it's been written by Nathan Lehman. I think this is Nathan Lehman's debut on the podcast as, a, as an author. Now, there's some um, confusion between us as to what his job is. Some people call him an intelligence analyst, and some people call him a performance analyst. Uh, I don't think we know what either of those roles does, but he is with the England cricket team and with the Kolkata Knight Riders. Um, so The Test is a novel covers an Ashes deciding test match from the perspective of the stand-in English captain James McCall as well as delving into some of his off-field trials and tribulations. Now when we say the stand-in England captain James McCall, James McCall is a kind of established cricketer. It's not a kind of boy's own dream of someone being called up from their their bed to go and dive into the Ashes. This is someone who's been a part of the team for years and in that sense the sort of story of the game is a very, um, I suppose, credible one although we'll we'll explore that um so Andy in terms of the sort of cricketing side of this and the description of the cricket how did you find uh Lehman's writing 
I thought it was excellent on the cricket. And I think this is obviously what Lehman is in a unique position to do. He spent years in around top teams, working with top players. Um, and his role clearly involves analysing the game in great detail. And that's what comes across in his descriptions. We've got the dialogue between batters, precise descriptions of shots and deliveries. And it's believable and it's plausible. And I think we've touched on before in the podcast the fact that actually cricket is probably lacking in fiction compared mm. to you know there's reams mm. and reams so so you know this has been this is a rare attempt to take on top level as opposed to yeah. village level cricket in fiction well particularly um, fiction and, and it's done really well. fiction that's not sorry to interrupt but particularly fiction that's not kind of misty eyed what was that book that we mm. were reading a few episodes ago about the village and um, cricket cricket game um I think it might be called the, cricket, the, the Hugh de Selling yeah, exactly, yeah, which is yeah. very much a kind of vision of, of, of um, you know, as I say, it's kind of like old school England, whereas this is very much a more um, kind of contemporary and incisive view of uh, the inside mm. of, a, of, a, of a cricket um, uh, of a of a cricket team. I did. I mean, a lot of it actually made me time uh, made me. Um, think it would be fascinating to have someone who wrote a fly on the wall book like this actually based on real life because one of the mm-hmm. things i often wondered was how much of this is is sort of fiction and how much of it is him you know inspired by true events and actually writing down things that he's seen during his time in the game particularly some of the attitudes that you see from the um from the from the players um there was this there a couple of things that kind of struck me one of which was this idea of um you know uh whether batsmen when they go into the nets are kind of really working out and honing their techniques and know everything about their techniques or whether as he describes it blind competence can solve a problem in the absence of a coherent understanding of that problem and i suspect both are probably true you know there are some people who then go on to become coaches who know exactly how a technique works mechanically there are other batsmen who just like i see the ball i hit it don't ask me how I do it, you know. Um, but there were some, uh, you know, kind of ideas and sort of theories raised that I think were really, mm. were really interesting. And as you say, stem from his work, probably. It's a nice feature of the book that actually he works in these very short chapters, which per- partly is very good for pace. It really sort of rattles along, but also it, it, it makes those diversions of the type you're describing work very naturally. So we'll get an account of what's going on at, in this test match at Lords, and then we'll go away to a discussion of the mysteries of technique. And those diversions don't feel sort of forced. They, they fit very naturally. And it also feels like really exactly what you want Lehman to have the opportunity to do you know he has this unique insight so so let's um let's let's hear it so Um, half the book's about cricket half the book isn't yes yeah and it's perhaps not a it may not come as a surprise that that someone whose expertise is in cricket the cricket is where it's strongest the moment we leave lords i think the novel becomes a a lot less sure-footed um, Lehman tries, I think, a little too hard to create off-field drama with alcoholism, marital difficulties and grief all thrown into the mix. I wonder if it's a bit of a first-time novelist thing. You you feel that you have to, you can't possibly not have enough drama. I actually wonder if it had the confidence just to have McCall as a not particularly troubled yes. figure. You know, I think it would have been fascinating because, regardless. Well, also because some of, the, some of the boring stuff that he writes about, some of the nature of touring life and the way that that interacts with your family i think hasn't been really explored all that much certainly not Mm. through 
well, either cricketing fiction or non-fiction, it hasn't hasn't really been mm. explored. In. And yes, he does kind of lay it on quite thick. It's not just that he kind of misses his kids and has some arguments with his wife because he's way too much. It's, there's a there's a lot that's kind of added on top of that in, in in terms of drama. I mean, it would make a great ITV drama series. Is those particular yeah. sections? It, it slips into it slips into melodrama, doesn't it? You know, we don't need uh, you know the sort of alcoholism. The it, it just it just becomes a little bit too much i think you're right it's it's laid on too thick and i think it's he, he should have the confidence to some extent in in his material you know cricket is fascinating you don't you don't yeah. you don't necessarily need I think, to do everything else for well, all... one thing though that i would say is that um what what it does allow you to consider is the fact that when we see these people either on the you know on the screen or in person on on the pitch mm. in front of us that there is a sense that they are cricketers not that they are human beings and this you know book kind of resets that quite um you know abruptly that when someone's walking out to bat you don't kind of know what they're what they're thinking about what they're you know struggling with um what is what it is that's going on kind of in the background of their of their lives and their and their minds and i suspect that might be why he's chosen to kind of foreground a lot of that non-cricketing material exactly to kind of make that um mm. make that point there's a moment before the um last day of the of the final this final ashes um test where um the um i think it's the is it the press guy who ends up having a stroke in the dressing room you know just before they're about to go out and bat to try and to try and save the game um and you know it kind of makes the point quite neatly about the fact that when you're a batsman you're not only struggling with the balls that are coming down towards you and particularly as a captain you're struggling with all of these other things in mm. your in your mind but yeah as you say you do wonder quite how much you needed um uh that yeah. sort of melodrama I I, I, do, I think the psychology of the players, I think the analysis technique is so on. I mean, there's a moment when um, the captain McCall is not alert enough for a catch in the slips, and he's he's kind of bailed out by his wicketkeeper. And the description of his thoughts being elsewhere on captaincy is, is completely plausible. I also found it really fascinating. And I'm sure this is from direct experience. This description of how it's impossible to insulate yourself from the press mm. because even if you say I'm not going to read the papers, you're deluged yes. with all your friends and family texting you to say, "Don't yeah. worry about yeah. what they're saying yeah, in the yeah, papers," yeah, yeah. which presumably leaves you thinking, "Oh God, what, what are they saying about me in the papers?" Um, yeah, and I think so. We've been complimentary about the cricket, less complimentary away from it. But I think one thing that is worth saying, and I think it's an achievement for any novelist, particularly a first-time novelist, McCall is plausible as mm. a character, and that is that is not an insignificant win. He doesn't feel like a um, he doesn't feel like a cipher. He feels like a yep. living, breathing human being who you take an interest in as a reader, and that's that's yep. not an insignificant. And I think the other thing I'd say is that it's a very very readable readable book. It doesn't outstay its welcome in terms of um, length um i mean it's not it's not short but it's the kind of book that you you know you kind of you kind of rip through even and indeed particularly when it gets into the kind of minutiae of the cricket i found it um you know particularly particularly readable at those at those times um the love scenes uh less less so um so that is the test by nathan uh nathan lehman um and I'm sure it's available from uh, most good um, bookshops. If it's not, tell them that they're not a good bookshop. Um, and that was the 153rd episode of Reverse Swept Radio. Please do leave us a review wherever you listen to us and join us over on Twitter at Reverse Swept.